he already told you who I am, so I don't have to say that. I'm Gloria Abascus. And um, the question here is, how long have I been attending? And um, I've been attending church here since 1968. Yeah, that makes me old. <laughs> I have been following Jesus and worshiping in this same place since I became a believer in 1971. And even now, 52 years later, whew, <laughs> I attend Village, and I have been attending Village since it was birthed here in 2023. And so, as you can tell, this is my church home. I, I, I belong here. <laughs> I belong here. And there's, there's been many changes in the years but Jesus has never changed since he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Amen? Amen. <laughs> that's, that's just the hint to get on with it, right? <laughs> I know, I know, I didn't take that bad. Today's scripture reading is from Jonah 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me, and I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to my neck. The watery depths overcame me, and seaweed wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundation of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my, me, my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. This is God's word. God fights for us with the full might of his redemptive hand. He is willing to make us uncomfortable and sad. He is willing to bring us through suffering and grief. He is willing to shake and unsettle us. He is willing to squash our dreams and let the air out of our hopes. He is willing to let what we have craved slip like sand through our fingers. And he does all of these things because we are precious to him. We are the apple of his eye. He will not share us with another. He will not allow us to live in the delusion that we have found elsewhere what can only be found in him. That's a quote from Paul David Tripp. We started the series off 
by pointing out that the story of Jonah, which is a well-known Sunday school story, right? It's not so much a story about a big fish. Yes, it is an extraordinary part of the story, but not the main point. We have been tracking with Jonah as he received a call from God, and he promptly ran in the opposite direction, and with no regard for the lives of the sailors, he slept deeply through a great storm until the captain demanded some answers. What's going on? What have you done? And trying everything that was possible to save the ship, the sailors finally relent and agree to throw Jonah overboard, this rebel, this one who is running from the presence of the Lord. And once they did, what, what happened? Peace. The waters calmed. And it said that they had great fear of the Lord, that they sacrificed offerings to him and they made vows to God. And what of Jonah? Well, the last verse of chapter one tells us what happened to Jonah, right? It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So chapter one ended with these words, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And so now we are here. And a great amount of ink has been used to try and explain this part of the episode. <laughs> the big fish, or the whale, or whatever you want to call it, right? What kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Was it a giant white shark? Was it an extinct shark breed? Was it a big tuna? <laughs> Are there any you know, news reports out there that we can scrounge up and find how a how a person could survive in a fish. How did he breathe? I don't know if you guys ever had this, uh, this children's book, but this was the question I wrote down. How did Jonah have a little candle inside of the belly of the whale so he could write this psalm? Okay, this is an image that stuck from a kid's book. There was a little candle on a little table as he's writing inside the belly of the whale. How did he bring that along and get that thing to light? I need answers. <laughs> but wonder of wonders, the Bible doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't tell us. All it says is the Lord appointed that a great fish would swallow Jonah. The point, the Lord did not want Jonah to die. So he made a way, a miraculous way, even as Jonah's life was surely lost to the sea. A divine act doesn't require an explanation. It requires our attention. And the author of Jonah is giving us a key word also to remember here in this, this text. It says, he uses the word that the CSB translates as swallow. Swallow. And he uses it quite intentionally to draw the keen Bible reader, to draw the keen Bible reader's mind to other places in the scripture, like say Psalm 21, eight through nine, where it says, your hand was, will, will capture all your enemies. Your right hand will seize those who hate you. You will make them burn like a fiery furnace when you appear. The Lord will engulf them in his wrath and fire will devour them, engulf them. That's CSB's word, same word for swallow. The Lord will swallow them in his wrath. 
Or Psalm 124, we studied this not too long ago. If the Lord hadn't been on our side, if we had been given over to the other people under God's judgment, what would have happened? Our enemies would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger against us. Being swallowed is an image in the Bible of being under judgment. And so the author of Jonah uses those words in this context as he's writing out so that we draw that hyperlink. He could have seen eaten by or, you know, <laughs> whatever it was. Went into a fish, but he was swallowed. It's under judgment. It is the idea of God's severe mercy to not allow his people to remain in their disobedience. So Jonah makes that three-day trip to death, basically. Three days, right? The time it took to, to travel to the underworld in, in ancient, uh, ancient mind, the ancient mindset. It's kind of like our modern-day uh, so-and-so was six feet under, right? But interestingly, the hyperlinks that spring from that saying, the three days, to other parts of the scripture, the, the way that it links to other parts is actually quite interesting to me. And that's what we'll see a lot of in this particular study today out of uh, Jonah 2, is we'll see a lot of links, because that's kind of how the Psalms work, or the poems work, is they connect us to a lot of other ideas and imagery. And so what is this of this three days, this trip that Jonah took in the belly of the whale? Well, in Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac, maybe you guys remember this story, Abraham and Isaac are making their way, and I, Abraham has been commanded to make a sacrifice, and Isaac is that sacrifice. And they're making their way in obedience to God to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham's making his way, and what does it say? It says that on day three, Abraham sees the place and prepares the sacrifice. Day three is the day of death. Day three is the day of sacrifice. But what happens? The Lord stays his hand, doesn't he? The Lord provides a substitute on day three. Well, Exodus 15 is another one. So after delivering the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, they go on a three-day journey in the wilderness, and what do they find? No water. The only water that they find is the bitter waters of Marah, it's certain death for the people of Israel. No water in the middle of the wilderness. Three days, right? What happens on the third day? God miraculously provides clean water to them. Or 2 Kings 20, King Hezekiah, he's stricken with a terminal illness. And he's told by the prophet Isaiah that he will surely die. So set your house in order is what he says. And Isaiah turns and walks away from the king and begins to walk through the palace and makes it out to the outer courts, or still, I guess he's in the inner courts still. Hezekiah hears the words of the prophet, and it says he faces the wall and begins to weep and cry out to God, have mercy, save me. And it says the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah as he's walking out and says, go back in. There's another message for Hezekiah. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord God of your ancestors, David, say. I've heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Look, I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go into the Lord's temple. I will add 15 years to your life. I will rescue you in this city from the grasp of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake 
and for the sake of my servant, David. So what is this theme, this idea of three-day journey or three days? What is this other theme that the author is playing with here in putting Jonah in a big fish swallowed for three days? Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, a giant fish, and was in the belly, the stomach of the fish, for three days and three nights. And this story is tying together these other themes. And I don't know if you noticed them in all of them. Yes, there's judgment. Yes, at times, there's difficulty. Yes, at times, there's illness and sickness for all sorts of reasons. But on day three, God brings salvation. This story is actually about salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. What we find in chapter two is the first time Jonah speaks to God in this story. Up until now, he has been running and talking about the situation, but even when the sailors beg him to call on his God, he doesn't do it. Now, over the side of the ship and into the great fish, Jonah prays. If you have your Bibles open to Jonah 2, you will immediately notice that his prayer is in the form of a song or a poem, right? It looks very similar to how you would see it in the Psalms, the book of Psalms. Hebrew poetry is is what it's crafted as, and Hebrew poetry often employs a literary device called parallelism. And what that is is that this would be basically groups of two lines where the first states something And then the second line restates it, but in a different way. And you'll see it here as we dive into it. We're going to go verse by verse really quick through through Jonah 2, starting with verse 2. Verse 2 says, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. You see, see the parallelism there? I called to the Lord in my distress. I cried out for help from the deep of Sheol. And he answered me, you heard my voice. And guess what? Being thrown overboard worked. This prayer shows that the the, the one who is praying, the supplicant, Jonah, he's very, very familiar with the poetry and the psalms of his people. In his moment of distress, he is drawing on many of the timeless classics and the timeless classic psalms of Israel included into his prayer. Psalms that were written by heroes like David. The psalms have given him a prayer language that he can tap into at a moment of stress and distress. It's one of the reasons why I like on our Wednesday night worship and prayer, we spend time reading some scripture and then we go to a place of prayer because we want the Bible and the scriptures to inform our prayers and give us the language. How do we pray? How do, what do we say? How do we say it? Psalm 120 begins the exact same way. I called to the Lord in my distress. And here's something that is fascinating as well. Chapter one Verse 17, listen to this really quick. Chapter one, uh, chapter one, verse 17. When it says the Lord appointed a great fish, the word fish in the original language is in its masculine form. Great fish. But the author does something in this second chapter. He switches the form in verse one of chapter two and now the fish is in the feminine form. 
So, right? So what? <laughs> well, when, <laughs> when the last verse of the chapter says that he is in the belly of the fish, that would be standard translation for the stomach. Right? He's in the stomach. But what happens when the fish becomes feminine? Womb. It can be translated as womb, and it connects to the belly being the womb of the fish. And the same line that Jonah is finally praying to the Lord, it connects to the feminine form of fish, and there the word belly can take on a whole nother meaning, womb. What happens in a womb? Stomach is for eating and digesting, right? Not fun. Womb is for new life and new birth. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. Sheol was the place of the dead, the place of, the ho- of hopelessness. As a, uh, in in uh, Job, it says, as a cloud fades away and vanishes, so the one who goes down to Sheol will never rise again. From that place, the Lord heard and answered Jonah. Verse three says, when you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea, the current overcame me, all your breakers and your billows swept over me. What is he doing? He is saying that everything that happened to me in this whole story, everything, the storm, the waves, the sailors throwing me overboard, the water, the fish, the Lord is behind it all. The Lord is behind it all. Borrowing from another Psalm 42, all your breakers and your billows swept over me. Verse four, and I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. Banished from your sight, just like Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. So Jonah was cast away from the sight of God. You see these hyperlinks that the author is drawing us to? Bible readers, he he wants us to see. See, it's like that, it's like this, it's over here, look at this. Drawing us into the story. Yet I will look once more to the place of your presence, to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to your holy temple. Because the waters engulfed me up to my neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. The waters, these chaotic waters that uh, symbolize this decreation that he's undergoing as he's sinking down, they're arising around him, and the waters, like the darkness of nothingness, begin to cover him. And what are his grave clothes? His grave clothes are seaweed wrapped around his body. I was going further and further down. Remember in the chapter one? He went down. Joppa. He got on the boat and went down into the boat. Down further and further and further down. Even to the pit. The gates had already shut on me and then you raised my life up. God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you to your holy temple. I remembered Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And my prayer came to you. You were waiting and you answered. 
To those who cherish worthless idols, those who cherish worthless idols, abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Those who cherish worthless or breathless idols abandon their faithless love. They can't give you life when your life is ebbing away. They have no breath to give because salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is saying, I'm not an idolater. I'm devoted to you. I will sacrifice and I will fulfill my vows and I will, you guys catch it yet? There's something wrong with this psalm. There's something wrong. We spent two weeks in Jonah 1. What is Jonah actually saying here? Or more specifically, who is Jonah talking about? He's saying great things, awesome things. Like he clipped them out of a magazine and pasted them all together. As we've been going through verse by verse of this chapter, has something seemed off to you? Has something about this poetic prayer seemed fishy? (laughs) So dumb, sorry. (laughs) It's written down, but I probably shouldn't have. (laughs) When Jonah talks about what he's done, the actions that he has taken, they've all been positive. I called to the Lord, I cried out, I looked to his temple, I remembered the Lord, my prayer came to you. I am not like the worthless idol worshipers. I sacrifice to the Lord, I make vows, I fulfill them. Is this the same Jonah? We spent two weeks studying. How many times has Jonah talked about himself in this Psalm? 23 times in eight short verses. He's saying all the right things. And that's probably why some of you are like, oh, this is good. Yeah. Wow, yeah, exactly. He's using the pious language. He was raised on Hebrew poetry. And if you were to classify this psalm right here that we're reading, this poem, you'd probably classify it as a psalm of thanksgiving and lament. Bad things happen, but I'm giving thanks to the Lord. But you know what you wouldn't classify it as? A psalm of, or a song of repentance. It's not a song of repentance. This is not like Psalm 23 or Psalm 32 or Psalm 51. Psalms of repentance. I'm in the dumps, yes, because I sinned and transgressed against you, because I disobeyed and ran from your presence. Forgive me, wash me clean. Make me new. None of that's in here. Jonah has already proved through his actions that he wanted nothing to do with Yahweh. He was willing to run as far away. And his request to get thrown overboard was already kind of suspect because it might actually be the ultimate way of running from God. Here is a prayer that is full of irony and thick with a satirical tone. It's over the top. Remember, Jonah was thrown out of the ship. He doesn't know what the audience knows. We know something he doesn't know. Do you know that? What happened 
after he was thrown out of the ship. What happened back on the ship? He doesn't know this. He was in the water. Those sailors, what did they do? They feared the Lord. They offered sacrifice. They made vows. Wait a sec. He says some of that stuff in this psalm. He doesn't know that the idol-worshiping sailors feared the Lord, made sacrifices and vows to the God, yet he's saying, I'm not like those pagans up there. I'm glad I'm not like those people. Does that bring to mind a parable that Jesus once taught? Luke 18. Told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I will sacrifice and make vows to the Lord. My sacrifice is better than their sacrifice. Samuel speaking to Saul after Saul had disobeyed the command of the Lord. Samuel said this, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and defiance is like witchcraft and idolatry. You're the idol worshiper. Jonah. Jonah. I pointed down the middle. <laughs> Wasn't an, intervent, an intervention or something. <laughs> we brought you all here so I could point my finger at you. All of these scriptures, they've, they've been available. So this is something to remember. All the scriptures that I'm referencing have been available to the earliest readers of Jonah. These are all available to the earliest readers of Jonah. And the author would be banking on their ability to make these connections. Do you see Do you understand? He's like Saul. He's like this. He's like that. Do you see these connections? Is is Jonah presuming on the grace and mercy of God to rescue him apart from repentance of sin and obedience? Is he making that presumption here? All we know for sure is that Jonah is up to something, and that's for sure. And we got to continue to explore his life to see, after this episode, is he a changed man? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just talking. Maybe he's a different guy. Let's see what happens in chapter four, three and four, and see if Jonah is the guy that he says he is in chapter two. But remember today that scripture is not about you. Scripture is not about me. Scripture is not primarily about big fish. It is about God. And it is about God revealing to us who he is 
and what he is doing. So in closing, as we wrap it up, what does Psalm 2 tell us about God? Number one, Psalm 2 tells us that God shows mercy on undeserved sinners. Hallelujah, can I get an amen? Amen. God shows mercy on undeserved sinners. Maybe you even find yourself in Jonah's shoes today. Maybe you've been sitting in your seat disobedient to God and undeserving of his mercy. Maybe you've been sitting there going, man, that Jonah guy, he missed the boat, literally. Like, you may be willfully running from what you know about God and what he's doing. You may be tangled up in sin like seaweed around your face. You may be laughing and scoffing at Jonah. Man, he sure messed up. What, a, what an idiot. All the while, you're steeped in self-righteousness. But God shows mercy to undeserving sinners. We have all rebelled. If any of you said, yeah, that's the person next to me, I tell you, we've all rebelled. We are all self-righteous. Don't think you are? See? (laughs) All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is willing to have mercy on you this morning. God wants you to experience his steadfast, faithful love. The Hebrew word is hased, and it's a difficult word to translate into English because it has packed with meaning. It's, it's a word that basically is packed with the words love, kindness, mercy, faithfulness, loyalty, all wrapped into one. He wants to show his hased, his faithful, steadfast love to you, an undeserving sinner. You are not too far off. You are, even in the deepest part of the sea, even there, God can show mercy. Even if you have run from his presence, as Jonah did, even if your motives are suspect, he can show mercy. God shows mercy to undeserved sinners. And number two, God makes dead things live. Jesus referenced this story, and I made reference to that last week, that he referenced the story of Jonah when he was talking to Pharisees who were asking him for a sign. Show us a sign, big shot. Show us who you are. And Jesus basically said, you're gonna think I'm dead. You're gonna think I'm gone. You're gonna think you rid this world from me. Three days, and salvation through judgment will be revealed. In Christ, we see that God makes dead things live. Christ experienced the severe mercy of God. He experienced salvation through judgment, but the judgment he endured was not a result of his own rebellion or sin. It was because of our rebellion and sin. He was the substitute. He took our sin He experienced our death for us, but God. Acts 13, 28 through 30 says this. Though they found no grounds to kill him, they asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. 
but God raised him from the dead. God makes dead things live. And you, now I am pointing the finger, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in disobedience. We too all previously lived among them in the fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You have been saved by grace. The final thing I will say is that salvation belongs to the Lord. There is another way to phrase this. In the Hebrew, it's Yeshua to Yahweh. Yeshua to Yahweh, salvation belongs to the Lord. Yeshua is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. Truly, as Acts 4 says, there is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And that is the Yeshua of Yahweh. Jesus, he is our salvation. And we began to see another glimpse, even in this passage, of what God is doing through him for us.